You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Hello and welcome to M Pavilion. My name is Jen Zlinsky and I'm the program manager here. Um, tonight we are delighted to host this evening's event, Heritage, How Women Have Shaped Melbourne's Cultural Landscape. Um, we have just, I guess, a quick kind of housekeeping. Um, tonight's event is one of 400 that we do between October through to February. Um, and there's some programs at the bar at which we um, have listed some of the events in across the season and hope you will join us at another event um, this season. There are bathrooms across the road at the Arts Centre. They're the nearest and definitely the cleanest. Um, and also that our bar is open all evening, so you're more than welcome to stay for a drink um, afterwards. Um, I'll hand over without further ado to Felicity Watson to facilitate this evening's talk. Thank you so much. So my name's Felicity Watson and I'm the Advocacy Manager at the National Trust of Australia, Victoria. And I'd like to first um, begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting, the Boon Wurrung and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders past and present and emerging and I acknowledge that the, the many generations of Boon Wurrung and Wurundjeri women who have shaped and who continue to shape this place that we now know as Melbourne. I would also like to acknowledge the work of Kami Pinos, who created this wonderful uh, pavilion, a terrific uh, female architect. Um, I think you'll all agree that this is a really fantastic iteration of the M Pavilion, and I hope that you all enjoy being here today. So this event was conceived really just to satisfy my own curiosity and my frustration as a... Um, practitioner in history and heritage, uh, not seeing women reflected in the built environment and the urban landscape around me. And I was really surprised and absolutely overwhelmed to see how much it's resonated with other people and how many people have joined us here tonight. So I'm really humbled and I hope that this offers all of you something to think about and I hope that you'll uh, engage in the discussion a bit later. So to satisfy this curiosity and to find out more about this topic, I have invited a number of speakers um, who have expertise in, in different fields to contribute their thoughts on this topic. So we have Dr Celestina Sagazio, historian and manager of cultural heritage of the Southern Metropolitan Cemeteries Trust. Renee Muratore, registered architect and heritage consultant at Trithowan Architecture. Professor Harriet Edquist, Director, RMIT Design Archives at RMIT University and Professor of Architectural History. And Dr Christina Garduno-Freeman, who is an early career academic and research fellow of the Australian Centre for Architectural History, Urban and Cultural Heritage at the University of Melbourne. It's a bit of a mouthful. So each of our speakers will introduce themselves in more detail shortly, but first I just want to set the scene. Over many years, there's been much research about the history of women in our city. And I acknowledge the work of our speakers, Celestina Sagazio and Harriet Edquist in this field, as well as many others such as Julie Willis, Justine Clark, Jane Jose, Bronwyn Hanna, Renata Howe, Naomi Stead, Dimity Reed, Anne Vale, and many, many more. 
But there is still more work to be done to recognise the presence of women in the built environment and our cultural landscapes. This discussion will look specifically at the role of women, generally in Melbourne, but there are also other stories which urgently need to be examined. Those of Aboriginal people, of migrants and people of colour, and of queer and non-binary people, groups which are often marginalised or ignored in mainstream conceptions of heritage. And I have to admit to you that this research has only just scratched the surface of this rich subject area. But sometimes what's evident on the surface is telling because it's at the surface where most of us dwell and glean the information that helps us to understand the world around us. So in conducting my research, I came across some, some interesting things. A simple search on the State Library of Victoria catalogue revealed just 26 records associated with Marion Marnie Griffin, an architect who left a significant mark on our state and on our country. This is in contrast with the 623 records for Walter Burley Griffin, her husband and collaborator. Most distressing of all, she's practically a footnote in her own entry in the Australian Dictionary of Biography. And this is one of the most prominent female architects ever to have practised in Australia. It got me thinking about the work of Claire Wright, her, the historian, and her retelling of the story of Eureka, and how that's shown that it's vital to re-examine accepted truths and revisit and reread records with curiosities. And buildings and landscapes are documents too that invite re-examination with fresh eyes. In looking at the presence and absence of women in the cultural landscape, some strong themes emerge. One of the most obvious examples of the absence of women is in historic statues and memorials. Beyond the odd statue of Queen Victoria or a mythological figure, few women and indeed non-white people are commemorated or memorialised in this way. In 2017, the age reported research undertaken by Waramai woman Genevieve Greaves, which found that of 520 memorials, statues and monuments, only a dozen were not dead white men. We have statues of male figures, including uh, explorers, colonisers, soldiers, poets, poets that didn't even live in Australia, footballers and music personalities. But if you're a woman and you want to be memorialised in bronze or stone, you literally have to be the queen or a saint. The presence of women is much more evident in public art, um, much of which is more recent. Aboriginal artist and Wurundjeri woman Mandy Nicholson collaborated with artist Nadim Karam to create Gayip, who represents the ceremonial meeting place of the clans of the Kulin Nation, just on the left there. Nicholson also designed the patterns on the ceremonial shields along Birurung Ma which forms part of the complex and evocative Birurung Willem installation by Vicky Cousins, Lee DeRock 
and Trina Ham. The playful work of Deborah Halpin, including Angel, can also be seen along the Birrarung. The waves of Inga King's forward surge just across the road from, from the M Pavilion are now a prominent feature of the St Kilda Roads Art, Arts Precinct. They're now included in the Victorian Heritage Register uh, following a nomination from the National Trust in 2017. And something that I find really interesting about King's work is that it was designed in order to encourage physical interaction with the work. So it's a really engaging piece of public art that has sort of been um, con connected with by lots of people uh, who interact with it. The Great Petition in Burston Reserve is designed by Susan Hewitt and Penelope Lee and was unveiled in 2008 to commemorate the centenary of women's suffrage in Victoria. And I don't know whether it was designed to encourage interaction, but it is a very popular place for skateboarders. <laughs> other, stories, uh, other stories about women are embodied in the fabric of buildings, but not evident without accompanying documentation or interpretation. This social history is often not well protected through our systems of heritage protections, which privilege aesthetic and architectural values over social and historical values. This has led to the destruction of significant places associated with women's history. A prominent example of this from recent years is the Princess Mary Club on Lonsdale Street, which was a 1920s neo-Gothic hostel which provided accommodation for women moving to Melbourne from the country for work and for study. A permit to demolish this building was granted in 2015, despite the fact that it was on our state heritage register, to make way for this 33-storey tower, which is currently under construction. The building's owners, the Uniting Church, argued that the condition of the building was so poor that it was not economically viable to restore it. It had sat derelict for decades. Next. Just down the road, the former Queen Victoria Hospital, uh, which was established at St David's Welsh Church in 1896, and one of, the, one of only three hospitals in the world founded, managed and staffed by women. In 1946, it moved to the former Melbourne Hospital buildings, where it became the biggest women's hospital in the British Empire. The hospital closed in, in 1987 when its services were relocated and many women campaigned to protect the buildings from demolition. Only the main entry block was saved, which is thankfully now home to the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. Next. Then there are buildings created by female architects and designers, which is still relatively rare. One of the best-known examples is the Lyceum Club, a club for professional women, which was designed in 1957 by Ellison Harvey of Stevenson and Turner. Significantly, the building's interiors, as well as alterations and additions, have also been designed by women, most recently an addition by architect Kirsten Thompson. Incredibly, though, this building does not yet have permanent heritage protection. 
although it has been classified by the National Trust as being of state significance. Another prominent female modernist architect is Phyllis Murphy, who practised with her husband, John Murphy, on many new builds and restoration projects. One of the most well-known being the Olympic swimming pool on Batman Avenue, designed by Kevin, with Kevin Ball and, and Peter McIntyre. Next. Just venturing out into the suburbs for a moment, um, because this is a, a house that's under threat. Um, in Beau Morris, the work of Sylvia Tutt has recently come to life with her house at 89 Oak Street, currently under threat with the owners um, wanting to build two townhouses on this site. She also designed another, uh, another three homes in Beau Morris, none of which are protected. Despite not being formally trained in architecture, this house graced the cover of the June 1966 Australian House and Garden. I think her work is also a reminder of the significant role that women have played in domestic architecture and particularly in interior design and decoration. And these are contributions that are often not recognised and often not protected uh, through the heritage planning system. Historically, women have been more prominent, though, in landscape and garden design than the built environment, such as Edna Walling, who started her landscape design practice in the 20s, and also modernist Grace Fraser, who is still less well known. Through her work with landscape architect John Stevens, Grace Fraser worked on landscape projects for Monash University, ICI House, the National Mutual Building Plaza, the Royal Children's Hospital and Western Suburbs Memorial Park. And her best known work in private practice is the design of the Australian Native Garden at Royal Park. She was also very influential in advocating for the protection of environmental values on the Mornington Peninsula. And I think it's very telling that when I was doing the research for this talk, I wanted to find a photograph of Grace Fraser and photographs of some of her work to share with you. And these two examples were the only examples that I could find easily documented online. Uh, and I think it, it shows that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in documenting the work of these women and making that available uh, to people so that, so that it can be used and interpreted and shared with other people. Women have also shaped Melbourne's cultural landscape through civic leadership and activism. While Jane Jacobs is one of the 20th century's most influential urbanists, many Australian women have also shaped our cities and local government has proven to be particularly fertile ground for female leadership. In her role as the first female Lord Mayor of Melbourne, architect Leckie Ord was instrumental in introducing policies to protect heritage places work which was continued by her successor, Winston McCoy. And this is work that's still evident in our cities today in its vibrant network of laneways, in the cafe culture that we have in Melbourne. The work that was sort of um, laid down, the foundations of, of the city's sort of vibrant cultural life during this time is still evident today. And she wrote a chapter in the great book, Urban Choreography, 
which is over there, which I really highly recommend that you read. And both of these women, like many other women, were highly engaged with the community through grassroots activism, um, which contributed to making Melbourne a more livable place and attractive to residents. So, as I said at the beginning, these examples just scratch the surface of the presence and absence of women in Melbourne's cultural landscape, but I think they raise some interesting questions and issues. So, I'm now going to hand over to our speakers who will each introduce themselves and um, make some sort of opening remarks and then we'll move into a discussion and I'll invite questions from the audience. Is that all? It's a great pleasure to be here to speak about women's sites in Melbourne, a particular interest of mine. First, I'll give you some brief information about my background and professional interests, and then I'll talk about the booklet Women's Melbourne. Um, I was born in Italy, and being a, a migrant, I wanted to fit in. Um, so quite early, I got interested in the history and customs of my new country. And for me, history was not just about facts, but about self identity and self-discovery. I was a feminist as a teenager uh, before I had heard of Germaine Greer and the second wave feminists. And as a female, I found it frustrating that I wasn't allowed to do some things. Um, as a heritage historian of 30 years experience, I've been fortunate um, to be able to research many historic sites and play a role in lobbying to save many of them. At the National Trust, I worked with leading professionals such as architects, architectural historians, um, historians and so on. In more recent years, I've specialised in cemetery research, cemetery conservation and tourism and played a role in encouraging people to feel comfortable about cemeteries because there's a lot of fear about uh, death in cemeteries. Recently, some of these threads came together in conducting Italian Carlton bus tours, which included sites in Melbourne General Cemetery and the iconic Ligon Street. For example... It's been great to acknowledge the life and contribution of, of restaurateur Mieta O'Donnell and social worker Lena Santo Spirito, who are buried in the cemetery. Reflecting this background, I have written and lectured about our cultural heritage, Italian history um, in Australia and cemeteries, but nothing has meant as much to me than producing the booklet Women's Melbourne when I worked for the National Trust. No other professional pursuit has given me as much inner satisfaction. I reflected on why this is. And when you peel away the layers, I am at heart a woman. Like other women, I want equality, justice and the ability to reach my fullest potential. So writing about women of all walks of life and their places of endeavour and struggles goes to my very core. So my gender is more important to me than even my cultural background or professional um, interests. And they're obviously all interconnected and have been necessary for the sort of career I've had, but I am a feminist at heart. So how did Women's Melbourne um, come about? While at the National Trust, I could see that most of my work was centred around men and their historic places as designers, builders, businessmen and so on. And I wondered why women weren't being well represented in heritage assessment. What could I do about this? I started to collect bits of information about women who were mentioned in my assessment work and gradually looked through the National Trust extensive system of heritage files for references to women and their places. I went through a lot of files for listening. Uh, the National Trust uh, produced a useful booklet, Walking Melbourne, in 2004, 
but still there were few women acknowledged for their roles in the historic environment. There's been a lot written about women in Victoria in recent years, but what was missing was a dedicated publication on women's sites, places such as public and private buildings, gardens and monuments that were associated with women. For example, they include places which were built or designed by women or places where women worked, lived or worshipped. The idea for Women's Melbourne grew out of a tour I conducted for members of the Women's Planning Network in 2006 at the invitation of community historian Sheila Bayard and former Lord Mayor of Melbourne, Leckie Ord. The Women's Planning Network and League of Women Voters of Victoria supported the proposal for a booklet. In 2008, as part of its efforts to celebrate the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in Victoria, the National Trust was successful in obtaining a grant from Heritage Victoria to produce a book and podcast on significant women's historic places. Further funding came from the City of Melbourne and the Helen McPherson Smith Trust. The research was an exciting process and I had substantial support from many individuals, women's groups, property owners and managers, the East Melbourne Historic Society and other interested parties, and of course, existing written sources were used. The booklet was published in 2010 and 2,000 copies were distributed free of charge throughout the community, including schools. And it was great that women's groups helped in its distribution. It highlighted some 140 women's sites in the CBD in East Melbourne. They include places or objects associated with the first wave and second wave feminists, the first professionals in their field, society leaders, parliamentarians, religious orders, architects, writers, artists, philanthropists and businesswomen. Some are very famous, a number well known and many others little known or not known at all. A large number, if not most people in Victoria, would have heard of Caroline Chisholm, the immigrant's friend who established shelters for women and children, Mary McKillop, our first Australian saint, Dame Nellie Melba, our first international star, Jermaine Greer, whose book, The Female Unique, played a very important role in empowering women internationally, and Helen Reddy, another internationally renowned singer who inspired many of us with her song, I Am Woman, a feminist anthem in the 1970s. I think a lot of you weren't born at, at that time. <laughs> but I think it's coming back, isn't it? It's coming back. Records are coming back. Uh, the publication also includes information on Varda Goldstein, the first woman to stand for national parliament in the British Empire, and Constance Stone, Australia's first registered doctor, who played a leading role in the establishment of the Queen Victoria Hospital. Many people would not have been aware that there were a number of early notable women architects and artists in Melbourne because they've been omitted from histories until recently. And they include Mary Marnie Griffin, and thank you for speaking about her, Alison Harvey, Molly Turner-Shaw, James Sutherland and Constance Stokes. And let's not forget so-called ordinary women who lived in the Little Lawn District as well as business owners and nuns and one of them was Madame Brussels. Now, Women's Melbourne is now out of print, but a scanned copy has been placed on the National Trust website, and I think women's groups are intending to place it on their websites. The podcast is still there on the, on the National Trust website. I think it would be good to reprint the booklet, if possible, and um, it is a very useful exercise uh, tonight to reflect on what has been done and what needs to be done. So I would like to thank Felicity and the National Trust for um, making this possible to get us going, get us thinking again. It's been eight years since that publication. Um
uh, was produced and I think, you know, you could have a much bigger book with um, a lot more places known. And what we need to do is nominate them. Nominate them to heritage registers. Keep talking about it until people are sick of hearing you. <laughs> so in heritage, you've got to be a bit of a terrier, never let go, and uh, just keep at it. Thank you. Thanks, Celestina. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Renee. I'm an architect and heritage consultant here in Melbourne with Trithow and Architecture. I don't have quite the illustrious career that Celestine has had, um, but I've been in practice now for six years uh, after my master's degree and a few years before that as well. Um, I've been working as an architect in Melbourne pretty much that entire time, specialising in conservation of some of our most historic places, Parliament House, Government House, the Forum Theatre, Bishop's Court, among many, many others. I also was lucky enough through Australia ICOMOS to go and work for the National Trust in Washington, D.C., um, working on some of their really interesting sites through Virginia and Maryland, as well as working on the Glass House, Farnsworth House and a number of other modernist landmarks. I think, um, for me, I find the, um, the destruction of heritage places that Felicity touched on briefly quite an interesting part of this topic. And I think that something that's really struck me when kind of looking into this a little bit more, and the Princess Mary Club is probably the best example of this recently. We have gone through a little period of time where we've lost quite a lot of our heritage. Um, is the, the loss of places that are particularly relevant to women felt more acutely in the general public and in the general discussion because we don't have as many of these places? And how can we sort of stop that going forward? How can we really acknowledge, as Celestina said, and get these places registered and, and acknowledged and interpreted as part of our broader experience. And one of the key things that I'd like to see moving forward as part of the assessment process and as part of how we protect these places is interpretation and interpretation of some of these lost stories. And part of that comes through the research that we've touched on. Part of it comes through... Um, looking into some different perspectives on history and how this has all been achieved over time. And one of my most, um, I guess one of my most things that I enjoy the most about my job when I am researching a historic place is finding and understanding some of the contributions that have been made by women in uh, the domestic landscape. So documentary research, photographs, family archives, a lot of that is such an underappreciated resource that's been pulled together mostly by women for their families and provide us with so much information on these places that we're trying to protect and save. And I'm going to keep it very short. So thank you for having me. Thanks, Renee. So um, I'm Harriet Edquiston. My, um, I'm an architectural historian, but I'm also director of the RMIT Design Archives and that's sort of where my... I guess my um, interest has been more focused in the last few years. And Felicity asked me to talk today because I wrote something a number of years ago in the online um, encyclopedia of women in leadership in Australia, and I've completely forgotten about this, and it's here. And I had to do the architecture and design um, bit. And um, if we talk about the environment, it's quite easy to talk about architecture. It's very obvious. And most work in women's 
heritage, in the influence of impact of women on our environment is in fact in the field of architecture. And the other fields are somewhat marginal and somewhat neglected. So within the neglected field, we have subsections of neglect. Um, we have mentioned landscape architecture, and that's extremely interesting because, as I point out in this article, in the 1890s, Bogue Luffman, who was a very enlightened director of Burnley, allowed women to go into Burnley, and Burnley College in Richmond, Horticultural College, sorry. Um, and they did, and it was that stream of women at Burnley who actually had a huge impact on establishing the landscape architecture profession in Victoria, but also in Australia. And um, these women then went on to establish professional degrees, first at RMIT and then elsewhere. And that, I mean, they, it's not just Grace Fraser, who's quite well known, Edna Walling sort of, sort of dominates the entire discourse around the early 20th century, but there were more important people than her, I hate to tell you, um, who were really advocating for the professional development of landscape architecture. And that's a field that um, really we need to know more about. Um, that when you look at landscapes, they're, they're designed. Everything around us is designed. Which comes to my role in the design archives. Um, and I guess my role is, is, is an advocate. I'm a historian. I write stuff. And um, we also preserve records. We don't have that many women, but we're building the women's collection. Um, and that is historically the case that we've all know that women don't do, haven't historically had that much impact in all sorts of areas of design. But when we also talk about our environment, everything we work with, everything we sit on and we relate to has been designed. So it's not just architecture, which is obvious. It's not just landscape, which is sort of semi-obvious. It's also interiors, which is less obvious, and industrial and product. And they're the areas that are hardest to drill down and get the women's sort of input. It's there, but I found it really interesting looking at women interior designers, for example. In the early 20th century, the discourse was set up by women in women's magazines about what interior design could be and how women could actually advocate for that and in their own environments work towards new sorts of interior design that incorporated health, sanitation and so forth. But it's really product and industrial design that is the problem. Um, women are active there but actually getting their profiles out is um, more difficult. I had the joy of um, curating exhibition over the road on, um, actually well, it was down the pit square, on automotive design a couple of years ago, three years ago, Australian automotive design, and I struggled to get women into that show. It was really difficult. But since then, I have found more examples. So for me, um, it's when we talk about women's impact in the environment, it's the environment at large, um, women running industrial design firms, women as automotive designers, because automotive being one of, was one of our great industries, um, women as lighting designers and so forth, and, and women running really complicated, which they do, um, industrial design sort of companies. So I guess 
my point is really that when we look at design and architecture, don't let architecture drown out the other, sorry, uh, forms of design. <laughs> and um, just be mindful that there, you know, that women have worked across all design fields and still do, but they really, we, these stories really need addressing. Um, and uh, I think one of the things that I found, and it's not to be sneered at, is certainly not with parlour and, and um, agencies like that now, is that from the very beginning women have been fantastic advocates for design and for women in design and they've been brilliant teachers. And um, that has been very important, is the way in which women have moved into, particularly after the, um, the government um, created a whole ranch of new universities in 1992. And all those technical, uh, technical colleges became universities and they were the hotbeds of design and women taught. So you have RMIT and all of that ATN network and women have played a very large part there in teaching and scholarship and that is really, I think, something we have to think about. It's not just what they produce, it's also what they teach and what they hand on in terms of that sort of intellectual legacy. There's another point, but I've completely forgotten what it is. <laughs> Hi, my name's Christina Garduno freeman um, I was actually born in Mexico and came to Australia when I was about nine and a half. Uh, and lived in Tasmania and then in New South Wales where I completed my PhD after having done a degree in design and then another one in architecture which made it clear that I wanted to stay in the university system. Um, and look, my PhD looked at, and you know, I apologise that it's not a Melbourne building but I'm working on that, but I did look at the Sydney Opera House uh, through online forms of participation, in particular to try and understand and evidence social value and I guess in some ways that's led me to kind of three observations that I'd like to share tonight. Firstly, I certainly had no initial intention of going into heritage, but I had a conversation with Bronwyn Hannah in the first year of my PhD at the Opera House and she said to me, um, you know, perhaps you might be interested in looking at social value because I'd found about 80,000 images of the Opera House on Flickr. And at the time, there was not any easy way to try and understand the social value of places that are so well known and regarded across Australia. And it was really the idea that places had a kind of an emotional pull or a place attachment um, or a connection to people that drew me into heritage, which I guess draws me to a second observations. Um, firstly, that there have been a number of kind of influential women in my own career, ranging from obviously starting with Bronwyn Hannah, but also Sheridan Burke, and particularly the work of Chris Johnson in Social Value. And my sense as having practised in architecture for a period of time was that there was more agency for women within heritage. Um, I understand that that perhaps may not accord with other people's perspective, but coming at it from um, having worked strictly in architecture beforehand, I felt that there was more opportunity to actually acknowledge women's perspectives in heritage. Um, and there was more facility through ideas such as social value that seek to kind of acknowledge the intangible aspects um, that people value about the built environment or buildings or monuments or landscapes. And that this kind of flows through to ideas around associative values at world heritage level or cultural landscapes um, and obviously at a national level around social value. And 
that then in the sense there's a third observation around the way that we engage with heritage. I think women, women's ways of engaging with heritage, and look, it's a kind of a classic example, but a lot of the things that I've looked at include, you know, um, the way people make cakes of monumental buildings from the Villa Savoy to the Opera House or to the Guggenheim in Bilbao. And there's something really interesting about drawing something that is uh, eminently kind of masculine and architectural into the feminine realm and to soften it and to scale it down and then potentially to consume it. And so, <laughs> you know, I kind of think that there's something to be offered in looking at the way women's practices and ways of engaging with heritage from, if you like, a more feminist or feminine perspective, two distinct things, um, can actually offer us a way to open up heritage to more than just... Uh, just simply preserving the material um, aspects of a place. Thanks, Christina. So I'll kick off with a question, and apologies in advance because I didn't give you this question ahead of, ahead of time. <laughs> so let's see where it goes. Um, Christina, you were speaking about the way that women sort of see things and um, the way that that has sort of manifested in, in heritage in terms of assessing social value and things like that. I'm interested to know in terms of design, mm. what kind of qualities you think women might bring to design disciplines um, like architecture that might be different to, to men? Um. I think it's it's a kind of a difficult question to answer because in architectural education I think we're we're often encouraged to look at the object um, or the building as object um, or certainly in my education I probably should just claim that it's from my own particular experience um, and that I think that often young female students are not encouraged to use their own knowledge. Um, and to privilege that, in a sense, to guide what they are trying to achieve. And I guess it, it draws me to ideas around sort of feminist geographers um, and um, the, there's a kind of a shift in placemaking where we're trying to acknowledge people's experiences and feelings. So I think there is a groundswell for it. But certainly in my own education, there wasn't an, a sort of an encouragement of actually drawing on that knowledge. Um, but perhaps Harriet might have some in, in terms of... You were talking about industrial yeah. designers and so on and what they might bring in terms of a feminine perspective or a woman's perspective. No? <laughs> no. I, I, I just can't answer those questions. I, it's too, 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 too tricky. Um, and, I mean, as you point out, Everyone goes through the same education and I just, no, I can't answer that. But I mean, one of the things that I find really interesting, I, I don't, can't remember when I wrote this thing, it was a few years ago, might have been, what, four or five years ago, but actually it's changed a lot and I wouldn't write this again because in most fields women have, I mean, there's some women architects I speak to and they wouldn't even recognise this delineation of women in architecture, it's all changed. So they don't feel any problem about women practising. And they're far more young women running their own companies, running their own practices, 
and doing what they want to do than when I wrote this. Mm -hmm. So the, the world is changing and um, I'm not sure it's changing in automotive design really, but anyway, it's changing <laughs> in, it's certainly changing, I think probably Renee thinks that too, that, that it, I, you know, in architecture, it, I can, there's heaps of women running their own practices. I think it's um, the work that you that Parler are doing for women in in the architecture industry is fantastic. There's a lot of um, a lot more support, a lot more acknowledgement of what's potentially been a traditional barrier to staying in practice as a woman, and also to support women who are making the choice to go out on their own and do do things in a different way. And um, we we've mentioned Kirsten Thompson before um, and her work at the Lyceum Club, but you know a few of our uh, presidents. Um, have been women as well. So we're starting to see kind of that increase in longevity in the profession, I think, is, is one of the other things as well. It's I think there's a big cultural shift happening, yeah. I'm interested in terms of the history of women in design. Um, I'll start with you, Celestina. Do you think that there's more work that needs to be done to document it and interpret it and to uncover records and, and... Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, in the little book that I did was only a handful, really. Um, and and I think you, you've made the point before that um, it's not only about architectural beauty when it comes to heritage. Um, you know, it's the intangible heritage that associated with a, a lot of the women's uh, work that's not... Um, Recognised. Uh, I remember when I was at the National Trust, we started to talk about intangible heritage, and it certainly has grown internationally. But still, there's a, a long way to go to actually understanding uh, what that means in relation to places. Um, so I just think this is just the beginning, and I think forums like this is going to hopefully inspire people to look uh, into it. Um, and in its 20th century architecture, when I was at the National Trust, we were just starting to really look at that. And uh, it's now the 21st century. And uh, I think there's a lot of scope there to understand uh, 20th century architecture. So they're the gaps, I think, in tangible heritage, 20th century uh, architecture. Um, and hopefully all these beautiful young people here will uh, be doing theses and articles about uh, all sorts of amazing women coming through the ranks. That'd be fantastic. That's my hope. I'm a baby boomer, so get on, get on with it and do some work and you know, publish <laughs> and talk. Be a, a heritage uh, protector. Get out there like in the old days, you know, in the 60s and 70s when we actually marched down the street. We would lie in front of places. I would lie in front of Melbourne General Cemetery to save it and, uh, and places like that. So, and tourism, I think that's my new buzzword now. I just think we can do so much more to promote the heritage of Melbourne, it, one of the great cities, great cities, and uh, architecture, intangible heritage. Let's get on with it, eh? <laughs> Thanks, Celestina. <laughs> well, on that note, I might open it up to questions from the floor, if anybody would like to put their hand up. Uh, up the back, right up the back. Jeff Robinson from Oricon. Um, great panel, great discussion. I'm really interested to know what the panel thinks um, the barriers are to, or are there any barriers 
to um, you know women continuing to uh, develop their skills as architects, heritage architects, landscape architects, academics, and so on. And what can we, um, as men working in the profession, do to you know help um, and um, break down some of these barriers? Um, I will kick that off. Um, I think the biggest one that seems to crop up again and again for, at least in my experience, not directly my experience, but for friends of mine and people that I know that have been working at this level is the ability to return to practice after having children. That seems to be the biggest barrier that I've come across that people have talked to me about. Uh, because particularly for architecture, and I can't necessarily speak for every firm in, the, in Melbourne or for people working more specifically in consultancy or other things like that. But it just seems like architecture doesn't necessarily lend itself to part-time work without the support of the surrounding practice, with the support of the directors and with the support of kind of the type of projects that are procured. And I think that that seems to me to be the biggest one that trips people over. Um, and that that's where, and this is through Parlour um, as well, that I've kind of been exposed to this a little bit more. A lot of women have started firms off the back of returning to work after having children and not being able to do that in a part-time way with an existing firm and still kind of have the life work-life balance that they're seeking. So that seems to me like the biggest hurdle at the moment um, and I'm happy for anyone else to jump in and disagree with me on that. Um, I think we are slowly getting there with um, certain, well, some firms kind of taking stands to help that along. The increase in women at higher levels of practice also helps with that and I think again just attempting to get to a, an equal pay or at least a closer to equity in pay is, is the other thing is it's not going to be easy to change those ingrained structures until it's as um, profitable or as you know equal for a woman to continue to work after having children as it is for her partner or husband or whatever it happens to be. So. Christina, did you have anything to add as, a, as an academic? Uh, yes, look, I, I think visibility is a really important factor. So, for example, Celestina's work in terms of revisioning places that many people would know through the lens of women's contribution is actually really critical. And I note that, for example, some of the work that um, Parler are doing are writing women into Wikipedia, for example. So writing the stories of women's contributions to the built environment is actually a really important part. Um, on a kind of different kind of project, even just collecting the images or the portraits of women who are currently working in heritage in the built environment and amassing those as a collection through something like Pinterest, right? And it's been done in science as a way of actually showing that there is a group, that, that it's not just the singular woman working in a particular practice or... Um, uh, you know, the occasional woman who, Carmes Pinos, who, who uh, is able to, you know, has given us this wonderful space, but that actually there is a collective. And I think that's something else that would really help to give agency to a project around recognising not only women's contribution to the built environment and their, their role in history, but their approaches to the built environment and their ability to speak. Thanks, Christina. Uh, any questions? We had a question up here. 
Hi. Um, I was interested um, by something you said, Christina, around finding the heritage profession more open to women. Mm -hmm. um, and as someone who works in that field, I've definitely experienced it as a more female-heavy industry. And I just wanted to ask whether anybody thinks that that's impacted on the way that other aspects of the design profession view heritage um, in terms of... Um, just the perception that people have of heritage within you know, more broadly architecture or, or engineering or design um, and whether that the strong pres presence of women in the field has actually impacted on the way that people perceive heritage more broadly. Um, thanks. I think that's... I think that's a, look, these are kind of my anecdotal observations, but um, I wonder whether there isn't something around the notion of care and caring and if we think about some other kind of professions around sort of teaching and nursing that are also about caring, um, often they're not considered to be as high level as other parts of those particular industries. Um, so I think your point is quite salient. I don't have any kind of research or, you know, particular theorists to offer you to back that up. But I do wonder whether aspects of the idea of caring for particular places has impacted the way that heritage is sometimes seen as a limitation rather than an opportunity. That's really interesting. I'm just filing that away for future reference. <laughs> uh, we have a question over here. Sorry, Christine, it's another one for you. Uh, I was smiling when you were talking about uh, women's uh, creative ways of looking at utilising heritage spaces and you were talking about the op Opera House and I was thinking immediately of how the New South Wales Premier of New South Wales found a very uh, interesting way to utilise the Opera House for <laughs> advertising and the wonderful public outrage that followed, um, and I was just—I I just wondered what your thoughts were at that time. Uh, look, um, I felt like it was my whole PhD research coming to fruition in around one specific event, um, and it was, in some ways, everything about the Opera House that we love because it's iconic, because it is a symbol burned in all of our minds. Um, it sort of. It, it demonstrates the double-edged sword of that, that on one hand it can be a really positive thing, but it can also um, mean that places become targets for commercial interests or over-tourism or, you know, for example, in the case of Palmyra, you know, terrorism. Um, so I'm not quite sure how that specifically relates to women except that I'm not a supporter of Gladys. Let's just say that much. Um, but we sort of need to find ways to co-opt people like that. How do we convince them that the values that we hold are just as important as those that are economically uh, driven or policy driven? It's really hard. I don't have any answers. I just think that it's something that we all have to strive for. Can I ask a question of the panel? <laughs> <laughs> it might be difficult to answer. Have you encountered prejudices as a woman in your field? And are you happy to talk about, without names obviously, in, in sort of the context and, and how you dealt with it? I got asked once if I knew how a laundry worked while designing a building. Yep, that was fun. Um, 
it was not enjoyable in any way, shape or form. Um, and yeah, that was pretty much it. Needless to say, I did not work there for a little while after that. Yeah, I have, but I'm not going to talk about it. But I think, I think um, to me, it's always been about the best revenge is just success. I think I think probably the best example is on a on feedback on a grant application that I was told that my research was kind of exciting and fun. So, really? yeah. Well, I'll answer that question too. And I don't think I have come up against um, any kind of discrimination based on my gender. It's definitely had a huge impact on my confidence and my ability to. Um, provide leadership and to be involved and have agency in the discussions that I have in a professional context. But I don't think that I've ever experienced um, that kind of gender discrimination. Um, and maybe that's because I work in heritage, which, as we've discussed, um, has a lot of strong female leaders and a lot of um, women working in that field. And, and I share some of the same mentors with Christina, um, there are lots of really amazing women who still still lead in that field. So um, maybe that's an interesting contrast. I'll just add something about that notion of care. It's um, I spend a bit of time going to archives conferences because of my job. And there are overwhelmingly women who run archives and uh, care for legacy. So that's sort of another aspect, I think, of it. And... Um, just as a plug for our archive, we have Lecky Ord's archive, personal archive, which is really interesting. And we do, one of our collecting areas is activism in a whole range of areas. So we just need to get on our website and see what we've got. We've got some good stuff. Thanks. Uh, we had a question over here, Sheila. Thanks for the opportunity to speak from the far flank. <laughs> Uh, I'm a bit interested in the uh, the questions we've been hearing about tonight, but in terms of broader community understanding and participation, and perhaps a little space for uh, the men in the community too. Hanging around in the foyer of the Queen Vic Women's Centre, I'm surprised, or shouldn't be surprised, about how many men turn up because they were born there. So there's something that draws them to the place that's been in their family narrative. But years ago, I spent time looking at the designs for Canberra, which were in the State Library of Victoria. And I was very interested in Saarinen's work, which led me to pilgrimages to the Baltic. And you have to say that there's a completely different culture in those places. I think particularly of the Architecture Museum in Stockholm and the one in Helsinki. And the idea that there will be regularly on display proposals, not just the sort of City of Melbourne consultation on this particular Arden Macaulay project or something of the sort, but that there is a way in which you try and inf have the whole community informed. And maybe the tradition in Melbourne of having ideal homes exhibitions somewhere way back then did do something to advance the opportunities to have the discussion we're having tonight in an earlier generation, certainly when there was that built-up hunger for homes after the Second World War. Did anyone have any reflections on that or 
No, I just enjoyed listening to yeah, it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I think that I, I think your point about the ideal homes exhibitions and also the um, small home service and those um, that was run out of the age by Robin Boyd and Neil Clarehan and so on. I mean, they were very generous outreaches to the public and we don't have that much now. And I think that's sort of something worth thinking about. I mean, architecture tends to be highly internalised. It's one of its big problems. And discourse tends to be internalised and to talk to architects. And it's, it is, I think, its major problem. Not the quality of the architecture, which is fantastic often, but that. I think um, programming through organisations like Open House Melbourne are starting to open that up a lot more, and I would acknowledge our colleagues from Open House Melbourne here, Emma Telfer. Um, and I think that, that programming like that does open the opportunities for people to connect and engage um, with architecture in a way that it might not be accessible otherwise. So I think that's been a, a real positive. And I'll also note that they did a really fantastic film this year, uh, an interview with the architect Phyllis Murphy. Um, so if you can catch that, it's, it's well worth it. Any other questions? Uh, thanks for a great discussion. It's wonderful. Um, Felicity, you mentioned this earlier on at the beginning about the um, how to be more inclusive of Aboriginal women and women of colour. And I note that we haven't talked about that, so yet again it's coming towards the end. And I'm wondering on the panel's um, views on how we can be more inclusive of particularly Aboriginal women who um, have something to offer in the space of in influencing our environment, our architecture, how we walk the land in Melbourne and how that can be privileged more because I'm not really seeing it. I think that's a really good point. Um, and we did see the work of the Birrung Willem um, installation a little bit earlier. Um, but I think that that is a, an incredibly interesting topic in, it, in and of itself. And I think that the... Um, Indigenous design sphere is really expanding and that there are lots of really interesting practitioners working in that field. And um, organisations such as in, um, Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria are playing a really important role in advocating um, for there to be more opportunities in terms of um, uh, inclusion in projects and um, commissions and providing advice on, on projects and things like that. So I think um, that that is a really important field and there are lots of really interesting designers working in architecture, landscape architecture, um, in heritage as well. And um, in, in heritage and in working at the National Trust, that's certainly something that we are very passionate about and is part of our reconciliation action plan and our advocacy um, in terms of the protection of heritage across Victoria. Um, we try to be as inclusive as, as possible, but I think that is a really good point and I would definitely um, commend the work of Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria to all of you. And if you look up that website, you'll be able to see some of the people who are doing some really interesting work uh, in that field. I've got a point I'd like to make rather than a question. 
which is about the elephant sitting in this pavilion, which is a political elephant. Um, this is an extremely undemocratic city. It always has been. There's only seven years when Melbourne City Council has had a democratically elected council, which people may not be aware of, and that was in the 1980s. The reason it came to being is that fortuitously, Winston McCackie as a woman led a huge campaign called Voters Action for the restoration of a sacked council. So the question of the planning process whereby heritage is or is not protected is absolutely fundamental, I would have thought, to the discussion tonight. The, the poll, the electoral role for Melbourne City Council, I would be most surprised if there's not enormous gender inequity there, given that um, business has two votes. So that's one point. My second point is about um, non-professionals in heritage protection. Um, in, the 90, in the 90s in particular, there was an assault on parkland for the construction of sporting infrastructure. There was Albert Park, there was Royal Park, there was Princes Park. Um, women were instrumental in those campaigns. So these are kind of um, people in the street. And I think there's, there's battles going around Melbourne now in Fitzroy, Clifton Hill, everywhere. People battling. But if the governmental arrangements, if the planning system excludes the public, women are left out. And women, as we've said before, are particularly interested in protecting um, local heritage. So I just would like that elephant in the pavilion to be recognised, perhaps in a future occasion. Thank you. Thank you. Any more questions before we wrap up? Oh, one down the back. Thank you. I'd just like to make an observation on the point before about Indigenous um, heritage. I went on a fabulous walk on return to Melbourne a few years ago uh, with Indigenous part of NAIDOC week along South Bank and it opened my eyes to what I had intuitively felt about this general area. And I urge us to think about maybe as part of the heritage environment thinking is what was there before and have the Indigenous community speak to the heritage that was actually built over or overtaken, whichever way you want to put it, um, as just part and parcel of how we go about thinking about incorporating Indigenous uh, cultural value. I think that's a really, really great point and that goes back to that intangible um, cultural heritage that we've discussed already and, and how we get these stories across um, for sites all over Victoria, um, how these stories are all incorporated and are all told because they are all worth being told. I think, um, as we discussed last week, Felicity, one of the um, projects that I was working... Well, the properties I was working on in the States was going through a phase of reinterpretation for its slave past and that the National Trust was actively seeking to research and interpret that as part of the understanding of a site. And I think that maybe we can learn some lessons in confronting sometimes a slightly, um, or definitely an overlooked part and sometimes a slightly hard thing to confront from a modern perspective. But I think we can definitely learn something from them about how to actually to do that and to incorporate some of these forgotten stories. I just completely agree with you and, and I've just come from a conference up at Melbourne Uni called Colonialism and Its Narratives and... Um, I mean, uh, um, Australian history is being rewritten as we speak. So all of this material is just being 
rewritten and absorbed into our dominant narratives, which are no longer dominant. And so um, it's really incumbent upon those of us who are historians to write these histories and for people um, who are custodians of archives or libraries or whatever it is to bring out that material so it can be assessed and talked about. But really, um, you can't, if, if the, if the uh, data is hidden, we can't do anything. So what I listened to this afternoon at, uh, at the conference were these amazingly brilliant historians just battling through the data. And we have to do that because it's, it's, our history is absolutely up for grabs. We've got this ridiculous history that we would be taught for generations. And it is being rewritten in the academy, but it actually has to come back into just our general history. And that will all be part of it. Thank you, Harriet. Well, I think that's a really great thought to leave this discussion on. Um, I would just like to thank so much our speakers for volunteering their time to come and discuss this topic tonight. So please join me in thanking them. And I would also like to thank Paula, who have co-hosted this event tonight, who are doing such fantastic work to promote gender equity in architecture. And if you haven't seen their website, I recommend that you look it up. It's got lots of really interesting information on it and lots of really interesting women doing great work. And I would also like to acknowledge um, my National Trust team here today, our chairman, Kristen Stegley, who is an activist and an advocate and a fantastic woman um, who I'm very proud to work for. And the advocacy team of the National Trust over here, Jess Hood, Freya Keem and Caitlin Metropolis. Thank you all for coming tonight. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.